Welcome. Thanks for joining us today on the Venture Podcast. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you along your journey. Hey, Venture, how you guys doing? Yeah, do you guys have a good Christmas? Yeah, awesome. Uh, I know it's been a wild season uh, for everyone. And uh, I know a lot of people have been asking me and grabbing on me, but we did have a baby. Um, we did have a baby. Yeah, right, right before the first service was starting on Christmas Eve, uh, little Charlotte was born. And, uh, you know, she is a lot of fun. Uh, and uh, she's eating and she's sleeping. She's the only one sleeping. Um, <laughs> And uh, but we're having a great time and we are so blessed. Thank you guys so much uh, for praying for us and just being with us through this whole process. Um, like Diane said, we're really talking about what are the ingredients um, that will really make a new year a successful uh, year for us. And the first one we talked about is thanks, giving uh, thanks. And uh, for me, this is a really easy thing because, man, I'm so uh, thankful, you know, for you know, nine months of just this tension and this buildup and to be here and to go, man, God has been so good and so faithful. But thanks is really a thing that's baked into uh, Christian life and Christian community. In fact, if you read your Bible, you'll notice that in the Old Testament in particular, uh, there's lots of feasts and festivals and the 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 reason you have those is that God said, I want the people to come together and stop and I want them to reflect and give thanks. And I just wanna check uh, you to check out this one passage um, where David writes this song and this is Psalms uh, 145. And check out what David says. He says, I will exalt you, my God and King and praise your name forever and ever. I will praise you every day. Yes, I will praise you forever. Great is the Lord and he is most worthy of praise. No one can measure his greatness. That, that's just worship. That's just straight out like, God, you're awesome. You're amazing. It's just worship. And then look how he defines his worship. He says, let each generation tell its children of your mighty acts. Let them proclaim your power. I will meditate on your majestic, glorious splendor and your wonderful miracles. Your awe-inspiring deeds will be on every tongue. I will proclaim your greatness and everyone will share the story of your wonderful goodness. They will sing with joy about your righteousness. And here's the big idea, giving thanks is worship. So if you came here to worship this morning, part of what you did is you came in to say, man, I'm gonna give thanks. And when you worship in this way, you're doing two things. You're remembering, you're taking time to like meditate and think and remember, but you're not just doing that, you're also gonna tell the story. And so, you know, it's an amazing thing. One of the things that I'm actually the most thankful for is, you know, we had these like long nights for a week. You know, it's like, man, how long can a week be when you're not sleeping really long? And uh, we've had these like long weeks and these long nights and I'm holding uh, this little baby and, uh, and I've had just a lot of time to reflect. 
And one of the things that's come back to me again and again and again is particularly in this last nine months, how this community uh, just kind of comes around. There, there was a baby shower that a lot of people in this church uh, threw for us. And there was this cool moment. It's a lot of fun. There's a lot of food and the Taddies kind of hosted it in their backyard. And it was just amazing. But there was this one moment um, where I can't remember, I don't know who got them together, but I got everyone together and they sat us down. And parents in this church from grandmas and grandpas down to people who just had maybe a kid a year ago, um, just told us um, the way that God works in having children. And I just remember feeling so rooted. And so, man, like I have no idea how we're gonna do this, but there's this community that loves us and cares for us. And I just remember this week, I just been reflecting on like, I don't know how to keep a human alive. Like this is a human being. Like, I, I don't know how you do that. How do you keep this person like, I'm like putting my hand over her mouth to see if she's breathing? You know, like, how do you do that? And so many times I reflected that I wasn't alone, that there was a people that came around me and said, hey, like we're with you, we're for you. And that's, I think what I'm most thankful for in this season. And here's what I also wanna do. I don't wanna just remember what God has done, but I wanna tell the next generation the story of what God has done. So here's what I'd like to do. Um, if you're, we have our kids in the house this morning. If you're one of our venture kids, would you stand up this morning? Would you do that? If you're one of our venture kids, would you stand up for us? You're awesome. And, and here, would you do something else for me? Um, if you're one of our venture kids, would you come up here and just come and sit on the floor in front of the stage for me real quick? Come on up here. Come on up. I promise there'll be a reward at the end, all right? Now you just come right here on the front, just right here on the front. Now not up on the stage, not here on the front. Yeah, 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 we gotta give more instruction. There we go, yeah, you sit right here. Awesome, you guys are amazing. And many of you are almost as tall as I am already. <laughs> you guys are incredible, what a beautiful group. Listen, um, one of the things that I wanna challenge you to do is to lean in to God's story. And do you guys know about David and Goliath? You guys know about that? Do you guys know what David's job was before he fought Goliath? Anybody know what his job was? He was a shepherd. That's right, he was a shepherd. And I don't know if you guys know uh, what a shepherd does, but a shepherd takes care of sheep. And have you ever seen a sheep before? You guys come to our thing? Okay, I just want you to know sheep, like they, they're kind of scared animals. And the reason they're scared animals is because the world is a really big place and, and they don't really know what to do. They don't really know how to navigate their way and figure out their way in that scary world. So a shepherd takes care of them. And what the Bible says is that David fought off lions and bears. Have you ever seen a lion or a bear? Yeah. yeah? David fought them off. He fought off lions and bears. And the reason he fought off lions and bears is because he was protecting the sheep. And you know, when he got called to fight Goliath, it wasn't his first time to ever be in a fight because he'd fought those lions and those bears. And the reason he was called to fight Goliath is there was a group of people. They weren't sheep, they were people, but they were scared. They were scared and they didn't know what to do and they didn't know how to navigate. They didn't know how to get forward and to fight this incredible big giant. And so... David stepped forward, just like he'd had as a shepherd to protect the sheep from the lions and the bears. And he fought off Goliath. And then he became a king for those people and he protected those people. 
But you know what's really cool? Is that if you read this Bible, the Bible will tell you that just like David was a shepherd for the people and he fought off Goliath, Jesus is your shepherd. Check out what John 10 says. Jesus looks at the people and he says, I'm your shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. And you know what a good shepherd does? Is when you have a Goliath, a good shepherd lays down his life and a good shepherd steps forward and says, listen, you can't fight this battle, but I'm gonna fight it for you. You know, that's what Jesus did for you. He fought the battle you and I couldn't fight. He fought the battle against the enemy and against sin and against darkness so that you and I don't have to do that. Isn't that a cool story? Isn't that an amazing story? Do you know how you can feel for sure today that Jesus is your shepherd? You know, one of the ways you know that for sure, how you can feel it today? It's because you have moms and dads that love Jesus and you have a family here in this church and these people come around you to make sure that when you're in the dark or when you're scared or when you're hurting, they come around and they remind you that you're taken care of and that Jesus loves you. Do you know that your parents have cool stories? I'm gonna give you, in just a second, I'm gonna send you back to your parents and I'm gonna give you some candy. You guys want some candy? Yeah. Give you some candy. And here's what I want you to do. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a handful of candy. I mean like a handful, all right? Now, if you get less than five pieces of candy in your hand, I don't respect you, okay? I want a handful of candy in your hand. And then I want you to go back to your parents and I want you to take sometime today, one of those pieces of candy and go to your mom or your dad and say, mom, dad, I got a piece of candy for you, but you have to earn it. You have to earn it. You gotta tell me one story of something that God has done in your life that lets you know that he's real. One story. You think you can do that? Yeah. All right, make your parents earn it. Make them tell you the story of God's goodness in their life. All right, let me give you some candy. All right. Get a handful. I'm gonna bring you guys a bucket. Hold on. Grab a handful and go back to your parents. There you go. Just a handful. There you go. There you go. Just a handful. One handful. One handful. There you go. One handful. One handful. There you go. Grab some candy. Grab a handful. One handful. There you go. One handful. You gotta share, you gotta share. You gotta share. Here you go. Okay, go, 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 go. One handful. There you go. Everyone got some? Here you go. Here you go. Grab some from your friend too. I just got two. And over there. You got two, grab it from that bucket right there. All right, parents, listen. The challenge is to you. Tell your kids the story. Tell your kids the story of God's goodness and his greatness so that from generation to generation, we rise up and we celebrate all that God is and all that he's done, amen? 
And thank you, Chuck, for giving our kiddos even more sweets after Christmas and everything. How are you guys doing? Good. I just came on stage from, from behind the curtains, from the backstage, and I love that space. There's something about just a strange sense of comfort knowing that it's not a presentable space. I mean, it's super clean, but it's got equipment and it even bears the marks of the old paint. You know, remember the uh, mustard color that was this worship center? And uh, every Wednesday morning, we pray here as a staff in the worship center, and sometimes we break into um, this individual time of prayer, and that's my go-to place, because it reminds me that God wants us to be real with him when we pray. Just, we don't have to put up a facade, we don't have to present our best self, just be real with him. Now, Jesus was a man of prayer. We uh, see him engage in prayer throughout his earthly ministry. And one day he finished praying and one of his disciples came to him and asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. And he said, sure, this is how you should pray. It starts out with, Father, hallowed be your name. Father, I mean, that itself was a revolutionary. He was calling his God, his Father. Not only that, he was telling us to do the same, calling him our Father in heaven. Father who delights in giving good gifts to children. And sometimes giving candies, right? Just, just to see the smiles on their children, right? And just Father. And hallowed be your name. Hallowed be, the verb used here means to sanctify. So when God sanctifies us, he's making us holy. But when we're asking God to sanctify his name, it means Help us to regard your name as holy. Help us to understand and appreciate how holy you are. In other words, help us to realize who we are talking to. When we realize that we are having a personal conversation with the creator God, the king of the universe, that backstage becomes the front of the stage. It becomes the most glorious place on earth, no matter what my friends are posting on Instagram, I don't want to be there. I want to be here with God. And we often think that this is a praise, but this is actually a request. It's a, it's a form of supplication. Hallowed be your name. And it's only right to ask the prayer to start out with because it's about him. It's not about us. And that is so important to Establish in order to be real with him. Because it's not dependent upon us, it's about him. It's not about aligning his will according to ours, it's about aligning our hearts, our agenda to his. Now, but Jesus also understands and he wants us to bring all aspects of our lives to him when we pray. Because he understands that what it takes to be truly be real with him. So the second part of the Lord's prayer goes like this. Give us every day, each day, our daily bread. He wants us to know and depend on him for every need, physical needs, financial needs, emotional needs. We're not leaning on the resources that we have accumulated or even our expertise or knowledge we depend on him. He's our sole provider. He's our healer. We depend on him. And then he 
wants us to repent, come before him. Now the forgiveness is there already through Christ, but he wants us to repent because we still sin daily, because we're sinful by nature. We need to come back to him and ask him to take us back and forgive us in order for us to abide in him. Now, if you look at that part of the Lord's Prayer, don't you feel like the order has been reversed? I don't know about you, but I feel like when I pray, that I wanna repent first, so that I can come clean before God, clear my conscience of shame and guilt, and then present request to God, God, so that I can come boldly, confidently before the Lord. I'm thinking verses like the prayer of a um, righteous person is powerful and effective, right? So it is good to pray like that with boldness, knowing that he has forgiven us. But I think the order here is intentional. God loves us so much that he doesn't, he wants us to come and repent genuinely, but he doesn't, he does not want us to use repentance as sort of like a formula before presenting requests. Do you know what I mean? Like his love is so vast that he's willing to listen to the prayers of sinful people like you and I, regardless of how we feel about ourselves. Because again, back to the first point, because it's not about us, it's about him. So it's not, it doesn't depend on how we feel about ourselves. Oh, I feel so sinful right now. I feel like God is not gonna listen. No, he listens. It is amazing. Now, I wanna share with you a personal story of mine just because I feel like it is helpful for us to understand the point of the message. And trust me, I don't want to. <laughs> I, have, um, I have temper issues. Some of you guys are like, oh, I find that hard to believe. Um, let's keep it that way. Uh, but I, I, it is real and I, I, I hate it. It's, as sin is, it's disgusting. And I even get scared by it, to be honest. I hate it so much that I become so like conflict avoidant, which is another issue I'm working on, yeah. But um, so you will probably never find out that I have temper issues, but very unfortunately, my family has met the Incredible Hulk in me. And, and, and three of my sons, my sons have got the brunt of it a lot of times. So a long time ago, last week, <laughs> I, I got really upset with my, my, my sons. I was livid and came back to my room just to cool off. And, I'm in that place, I'm like, oh man, did it again. Like, I'm overwhelmed with shame. I feel so defeated. I feel so bad for my sons. I'm just sitting there, gosh, I, I gotta pray. As soon as I closed my eyes, automatically I said, Lord, I'm so sorry. And I just had to stop myself because it didn't feel right. I mean, there's nothing wrong with saying sorry after doing something wrong, but I felt like it was incomplete. I felt like I was saying it just get off the hook. 
felt like it was hollow. You know what I mean? So I just didn't know what to say. So I just sat there for a while, just like wondering, how am I going to start this prayer to be real with him? Then I prayed, God, I need your help. I need your help. I cannot believe it's 2024 tomorrow. Some of you guys may have New Year's resolutions, and it's great. We all want to be great versions of ourselves. It's great. But I want to encourage you to invite God into that journey of transformation through prayer. And the first thing that you need to do is be real with him. Invite him. God, I need your help in this area of my life. And he will, he is faithful. He will help us. And today I want to end this time, this portion of the worship service, by giving you some time to pray. If you came alone, I want to encourage you. I know this as an introvert is whenever a preacher asks you to do this, I'm like, oh, I don't want to. But it's, this is what church is about. So grab one or two people just to share, just shortly share what you need and actually spend some time to pray for one another. If you came as a family, please, parents, it's a great time to be open and vulnerable with your kids and share and pray. And also, if you can't find anyone, no stress, just take some time to pray. I want to give ourselves some time to do that this morning. Thank you so much. God bless you. So just in case you were wondering, the first ingredient for a happy new year is thanks. Be thankful. Second ingredient, in case you missed it, was be prayerful. And then as we wrap up this morning, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about hope. If we want to have a happy new year, one essential ingredient is just hope. There's no shot if you're coming into 2024 before it's even began, already defeated, already filled with anxiety, already frustrated, if there's not a little bit of excitement, a little bit of anticipation, a little bit of hope, and we're lost already. So as we wrap up the three ingredients for a happy new year, I just want to spend a little bit of time talking about hope. And honestly, I think in new year, there's kind of a natural anticipation, excitement. There's that natural hope just because it's a brand new year, untouched, unblemished. There's not any mistakes that's been made. There's no setbacks. There's no breakups. There's no difficulties. There's no sickness yet. It is still an untouched year. Maybe it's just because we live in the Northern Hemisphere. And for me, New Year's and winter go hand in hand. When I imagine New Year's, the picture that comes to my mind is an untouched mountain covered in a couple of feet of powder, just waiting for somebody to lay fresh tracks on their skis or on their snowboard. Last year, epic year for skiing here in California. I was lucky enough when I was skiing with my boys to watch one of the workers go out 
and pull out the sign that said Tamarack Lift Closed is up at Heavenly, take it aside. And I asked the guy, hey, are you guys opening Tamarack back up? And they said, yep, just open. Should be getting people on it right now. And I told my kids, go immediately to the bottom of Tamarack. Do not stop, do not talk to anybody, don't wait for anybody, get to the bottom of the lift. We get to the bottom of the lift and we're one of the first people that get on. And during the dump that they had up in Tahoe, there was so much fresh snow that Tamarack was, they had height issues, like there's too much snow for the lift to go off. And so they had to been digging it out all day. And finally there was enough clearance for them to be able to open up the lift. And me and my boys were on the first, one of the first people onto the lift. And as we're going up, the entire, just like all of the runs that are, uh, that you can get to from Tamarack are just untouched, like a foot, a foot and a half of just beautiful powder. And so I, on the way up, I'm telling my boys, guys, you might not see this in five or 10 years. You will be telling your children about this moment right here. So again, like whatever you have to do, lock in, it's go time. I will see you at the bottom of the lift. If I don't see you at the bottom of the lift, just know I'm gonna be lapping this chair for the rest of the day. It's go time. And there is just that sense of anticipation when we come to a new year of, man, it is untouched, it's unblemished. But if we're honest, that excitement, that anticipation, it only asks for a little bit. The excitement wanes, the gyms empty out. I think it's by the third week, 70% of resolutions are already, uh, already into the wind and they're already gone. And they're just crease back this familiar problem, us. <laughs> We're taking ourselves into 2024. And so as we talk about hope this morning, I don't want us to talk about hope because of new year. I don't want us to have hope in this new year because of something very different. And in fact, I think the anticipation, the excitement, the natural hope that we have when it comes to new year, I think it's actually hardwired into us to be excited for something that is going to be ultimately new, something that is gonna remain unblemished, something that's gonna remain unstained, something that we can't mess up, something that even when we bring ourselves into it, it's going to stay fresh and stay new. Here's how Solomon said it in Ecclesiastes chapter three. He said that God has written eternity on man's heart. There's just something hardwired inside of us. It's like we're longing for that eternity. And it's not just us that have this longing. In Romans chapter eight, Paul says, all of creation is groaning, looking forward for the redemption for all of the wrong, all of the hurt, all of the pain in this world to be set right. The creation itself is in eager anticipation for when things get made new again. And honestly, we have these appetites in us. And I think after year after year of just like thinking that this year is gonna be better and that, that uh, unavoidable frustration that comes when, ah, <coughs> we realize that we have these unmet desires. Here's actually what C.S. Lewis says about our unmet desires. I've been reading a biography about C.S. Lewis. So I kind of have C.S. Lewis on the brain uh, this weekend. And so if you're thinking, Charles, you're quoting C.S. Lewis, you're referencing C.S. Lewis. Uh, 
He's not the only person that I read, but he's probably gonna be the only person that you hear from today. Here's what C.S. Lewis says about those desires. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. And he gives a couple of examples. He talks about babies. Babies cry when they get hungry and that's okay because there's such a thing as food. Ducks want to swim and that's okay because there's such a thing as water. And I'll paraphrase uh, Lewis a little bit. He says, men feel this desire for intimacy and that's okay because there's such a thing as marriage. But then he adds this. If I find in myself a desire, which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. In our desires, in, in our hardwired anticipation and hope, it's pointing towards something. Our unmet expectations, our signposts pointing that we were made for another world. C.S. Lewis wraps up the section of mere Christianity by saying, I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turn aside. I must make it the main object of my life to press on to that country and to help others do the same. C.S. Lewis says the real point of satisfaction, the thing that our hearts are longing for aren't going to be found here in this life. The, sign point, the signposts are pointing to that country. He's saying the hope that we have is not in the possibilities of the new year. The hope that we have is in the promise of a new heaven and a new earth. C.S. Lewis uses that phrase, this country, our true country, but as we look into the scripture in Revelation chapter 21, Revelation 21, here's how John describes it. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. As we look about, as we talk about hope this morning, the hope that we have is in the new heaven and in the new earth. Once we start talking about the new heaven and the new earth, there's instantaneously a million and one questions that pop up. Who, when, why, where, how? If you, my experience in high school ministry is if you want a small group discussion to go on indefinitely, there's two things that'll get you that result. One, you start talking about Genesis. Really anything from Genesis one through five, you start talking about the beginning of humanity, creation, where did man come from, original sin, evil introduced into the world. You start that conversation and it'll go on for days. The second way to get high school students to be talking for forever is by going to the other extreme, going to the end of time, talking about what happens after death, 
What happens at the end of the world? What happens with the new heaven and the new earth? Both of these things are surrounded with such amazing questions, such curiosity. And so for this morning, since we have a limited amount of time, we're just gonna go through a few questions. We're gonna start with the, the question that really I think is important, when? When does all of this happen? And honestly, when we consider when, what John is talking about in Revelation 21 happens, uh, it can provide such clarity for us to provide that hope that's genuine and real. There's a lot of confusion when it comes to what happens after death with Christians. And I think the main reason that there's confusion with what happens after death with Christians is because there's two events that frequently get smashed in together and there's not the clarity of bringing them apart. Here's what I mean. Let me give you, give me five minutes. I'm just gonna kind of walk through what the Bible says about life after death and kind of paint hopefully a clearer picture uh, than some of us might have. Immediately after death, what everybody will go into is what's called the intermediate state. It's kind of like the hotel lobby. It's not the final destination, but it's kind of a waiting place, waiting for that final destination. In that waiting space, there's two places that people will go. People will either go to heaven to be with God or people will go to hell. The Bible makes this really clear. When Paul's talking about death, he says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When we breathe our last breath, if we've believed in Jesus, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's why when Jesus, when he was talking to the thief on the cross, he looked over next to him and he said, today you will be with me in paradise. Maybe the clearest place that we see this immediate transition into what's next is in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, where Jesus talks about the rich man and Lazarus that both passed away at the same time. Lazarus was taken to Abraham's side, to Abraham's bosom, while the rich man was tormented in flames. And we see two places that people go after death in this intermediate state. It's not the final story. A lot of times Christians get mixed up and we think, well, once I die, I go to be with Jesus and that's it. But that is not what scripture teaches. Even after death, after the intermediate state, there's something else that we look forward to. And that's what John's talking about. The when of this new heaven and this new earth is at the end of all things. After all of the prophecies in the book of Revelation, after the tribulation, after the return of Christ, after the millennium, after the judgment, at the end of all things, we come to the new heaven and the new earth. At the end of all things, we realize we're just beginning. It's the new heaven and the new earth that comes in at the end. We see when these things are going to happen. The second question that I wanna ask us is where this is gonna be. Is this in the sky? Is this this golden city? Is this some like disembodied experience? Where is all of this gonna happen? And for that, I just wanna draw our attention back to verse number one. In verse number one, John says, I saw there a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, getting ready for this. Uh, there's a book that I should have read years ago, never got around to it, finally got around to reading it, is Randy Alcorn's book, just titled Heaven. Released, out in, two, released in 2004, it's kind of the go-to book for evangelicals wanting to know more about heaven. Just a great uh, theology that sets the ground for us to understand what heaven's all about. And as Randy's talking about heaven, 
There's one pet peeve that he just harps on over and over again. And it's our common conception of heaven. If you Google, what does heaven look like? Here's what's gonna pop up. And if Randy Alcorn were here, I think he'd stomp his feet and clap his hands and say, discard this mental picture. Get this picture out of your head. If what you think when you think heaven is a city in the clouds, a stair to some pearly gate, Peter and John is standing there. If you're imagining like we all get to these fat baby bodies and we're wearing a diaper with arrows or maybe it's harps. If that's your mental picture, it is not a biblical picture. What we see in scripture is that when John is trying to get us to understand what the ultimate state is going to be, he says it's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. From the beginning in Genesis chapter one, verse one, it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's just kind of the sum total of our universe, of everything, of God's space and of our space, heaven and earth. And what John says is there's gonna be a new heaven and a new earth. If somebody came to you today and said, I'm gonna get you a new car. You wouldn't scratch your head and say, I mean, I wonder if there's gonna be wheels on this thing. Well, what about chairs and doors and windshields? Like, is this new car going to have any of these things? Obviously it's gonna have these things. The best way to understand what a new car is gonna be is by looking at your old car and thinking it's gonna be like this, but a little bit better. In the same way, heaven is going to be like our heaven, like our earth, but better, restored. It's Eden brought back again. It's God's original intent for man to be controlling, to be his image bearers in his creation, bringing about his will, singing his praises, doing the things that we do on earth. Where is heaven? It's here. But it, excuse me. Where is heaven? It's like it is here, but God redoing and remaking the brokenness and bringing a new heaven and a new earth. Honestly, I think that imagination is super helpful as we think about the new heaven and the new earth. Uh, since we're talking about skiing today, uh, it was in high school that I got bit with the love for the mountains, for the snow, for the rush of going too fast, then I, I probably should be going. And my brother, who's three years younger than me, he got bit by the same bug. And so through high school, we were skiing as much as humanly possible. I remember one time I'm having a conversation with Gabe and Gabe uh, gets his profound stance and he tells me, Charles, I'm pretty sure there's gonna be snowboarding in heaven. And at this point, I'm just a high school student. And so like, I'm, I'm not theologically trained. I'm thinking, all right, Gabriel, that's a weird thing to say. He's like, no, 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 think about it. I mean, heaven is the opposite of hell, no? I'm like, no, okay, sure, I'm following you. It's like, hell is a lake of fire. What's the opposite of a lake? A mountain. It says, hell is hot. What is the opposite of heat? What could you cover a mountain with to make it the opposite of the lake of fire? I was like, I see where you're going, Gabriel, and I kind of like it. <laughs> now that I'm a few degrees in, there might be a few holes with his theological reasoning, but I appreciate that he's using his imagination, trying to think through, man, as God tells us that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, what is this gonna be? What is it gonna be like? What are we gonna be doing in this new heaven and this new earth? As, I, uh, as I've been thinking about the importance of imagination, 
uh, I've really have been appreciating the works of C.S. Lewis. There's two things, there's two books that C.S. Lewis has that bring just his amazing imagination to bear on what the new heaven and the new earth is gonna be like. The, the first one is the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia, the final battle. And honestly, a good chunk of the final battle isn't, is when the battle is already done and Aslan brings all of those who are faithful to him into the high country, further up and further in. And he paints this amazing, amazing, imaginative uh, picture of what heaven could be like, the new heaven and the new earth. I would recommend you read uh, the final battle. The second work uh, also from C.S. Lewis is The Great Divorce. The Great Divorce uh, has some theological questions to it. Theo uh, specifically, C.S. Lewis takes a pretty strong stance on purgatory. As a church, we wouldn't believe that purgatory is biblical, but man, if you read it for his way of imagining what heaven could be like, a solid place, more real than anything we've experienced here on this earth, it's well worth the read helping us to put imagination to where is, where is this gonna happen? Where is this new heaven and this new earth? <clears throat> Moving on, who's going to be there? Who's gonna be there? In verse number three, Bible tells us, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. The main focus, the main difference between that place and where we are right now is God. God's going to be there. All from the beginning of the story, what we have is Adam and Eve walking in the garden of Eden with God, but that relationship was broken. And when it was broken, there was not the possibility for intimate interaction between God and man. Even when Moses prayed, Moses, God's chosen prophet, let me see your face. He said, no man can see my face and live. And so he covered him in the cleft of the rock and he allowed Moses to see his backside. But in heaven, the glory will be that we will see God face to face. And it won't just be God. He says, he will be our God and we will be his people. We will be there. We, there there's no sense that heaven will make us unrecognizable to each other. I will still be Charles. You will still be you. People will be able to remember you and see you and you will have your same quirks redeemed and brought uh, to the completion that God wants them to be. But we will be us in heaven, the people. Before we move on uh, talking about who is going to be in heaven, there's two verses right around uh, this passage that I wanna point out. Right at the end of chapter 20, before we get into the passage that we just read, John specifically says that the only the people who have their names written in the Lamb's book of life will be part of the new heaven and the new earth. If you read through chapter 21, you come to the end of 21, John repeats the same verse. Only the people who have their names written in the Lamb's book of life will be part of this new heaven and this new earth. And so I just wanna ask the question to you, do you know if you will be part of the new heaven and the new earth? Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Have you pledged your allegiance to Jesus? Have you given him your heart? Have you said, Jesus, I will follow you? Who is in heaven? People that are loyal to God, God himself and all of his people. Lastly, 
what is gonna be in heaven? What is gonna be in heaven? Specifically as John is talking about what is gonna be in heaven, he actually takes a negative view. He doesn't tell us exactly what will be there, but he tells us what's not going to be there. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be there no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. What's gonna be there? None of this junk, none of our wounds, none of our mistakes, none of our regrets, none of our addictions, none of our shortcomings. When we get to the new heaven and the new earth, we will see God and God will change us. We will be redeemed, we will be remade. We will be reinstated to our original capacity to be his full image bearers shining his glory into creation and singing his praise back to him. Last question that I have for you guys is are you excited about heaven? I asked my wife this a couple days ago. I said, babe, we're driving. Are you excited about heaven? Do you you ever think about heaven? Uh, And we chatted about it in the car for a little bit. And and honestly, I kind of had to make a confession I said, I think there's something broken inside of me, specifically my ability to anticipate. I, I never am excited about things until I'm actually doing the thing. I, I'm never like looking forward and saying, I can't wait for this. I'm just kind of in the moment, whatever's happening, that's what I'm focused on. It's kind of a confession. It's like, I think there's something broken inside of me about it. And over the last couple of days, I've been thinking about it. And that hasn't always been who I, who I am. In fact, there's kind of two moments in time, one from 20 years ago, one from this year, that, that I was contrasting to, to kind of realize there's a reason that I'm not excited, that I'm not anticipating, that, I, that maybe I'm not hopeful. 20 years ago, fresh out of high school, I spent nine months in Fiji. Uh, did, I was working with a missionary there, kind of just a gap year missions program. It was fantastic. And after serving for eight months, it was, it was my time to explore the island. And it was fantastic. I had a buddy there, it was me and Rob. And then Kristen was flying over. She was gonna come hang out with us for the last month. And we were just gonna spend a month just rolling through the city, kind of do the backpacker thing, going through to the cheap hostels, doing all of the cheap activities that we could uh, afford at our teenage, on our teenage budgets. But we were so excited. And, and back in the day, uh, you couldn't like hop online and just Google what are the best things to do in Fiji. Uh, those blogs, those YouTube videos didn't exist. And so if you wanted to know what to do when you were traveling through a country, you had to buy this ancient thing called a book. Lonely Island, Lonely Island, Lonely Planet. Lonely Island is a band. Lonely Planet is a book. Lonely Planet travel guides were kind of the gold standard for travel guides. 
And so I bought Lonely Planet's version of uh, Fiji and it might've included New Zealand as well. And I remember just for months as Kristen was getting ready to come, just pouring over the book. I mean, I had it highlighted, I had it like marked. I was like, we're gonna go snorkeling over here. We're gonna head out to that island. We're gonna make sure we go visit over here. And just like the whole itinerary planned out in detail, knowing exactly where I wanted to go. And because I had been doing so much homework, like for months getting to the point where I was actually going on vacation, I was so excited about it. Like I, it was back in the day when uh, you couldn't just FaceTime people. And so it was like AOL instant messenger. Chris and I would chat back and forth and be like, I'm so excited for this and for that. And there was just this anticipation in my heart, this hope for what was coming up. Contrast that with this summer. This summer, amazing vacation. Went to Hawaii, the whole family came with us. Grandma and grandpa were there. Uh, it, was, it was spectacular, but it was immediately after Adventure Kids Camp. And if you have kids, you remember Adventure Kids Camp from last summer. If you don't have kids, just imagine how difficult it would be if there were 350 kids sitting in here and you're the one kind of overseeing everything. It's a headache, uh, a joyful headache, but a headache. And immediately after Adventure Kids Camp, the night that it finished, we were flying out to go to Hawaii. And so I did zero homework for Hawaii. Like I knew that we were going to, to Maui. I knew that Kristen had a place booked. I knew that we had a car booked. And I was like, all right, we'll figure out everything else when we get there. And so it wasn't until we got on the plane and I was like, what in the world are we gonna do in Maui? Like, what is there in Maui? The difference between the two vacations, both the vacations were fantastic. The difference was for one of them, I got to enjoy it for a month or two before the vacation happened. I got I to like anticipate and lean into it. For the other one, I was just like, I hope this works out well. Uh, we'll figure it out. It still ended up being great but I lost out on the anticipation. Here's what Jonathan Edwards says. It becomes us to spend this life only as a journey towards heaven. Why should we labor for or set our hearts on anything else, but that which is our proper end and true happiness? Are you excited about heaven? If not, maybe you need to grab a book out and you need to do some anticipatory, like just studying of what's going to be there. Man, read John 14, the first six verses. Read Revelation 21, read, read the whole chapter of Revelation chapter 21. Or maybe you go and you buy Randy Alcorn's book about heaven, or maybe you buy the C.S. Lewis, the final battle or the great divorce, but let's get excited about what God has in store for us. Let's have our new year filled with hope. I don't know what it is that you need coming into this new year. Whether you're a grouch and you just need to get kicked in the butt and said, hey, be thankful. Or maybe you've neglected your prayer life and you need the encouragement to invite God into what's going on in your life to pray the Lord's prayer. Or maybe you're run down and what you need is hope. Can I send you out with this? <clears throat> May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing 
so that, the, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. You're dismissed. We hope today's message encouraged you in your journey of faith. To keep up with the latest messages and what's happening, make sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit venture.cc.